Welcome to City of God, a podcast of the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Dr. Owen Strand, and I'll be your host. Join us each week as we engage the city of man with the biblical wisdom of the city of God. Welcome to City of God. Today on the podcast, Dr. Jason Allen, the president of Midwestern Seminary and Spurgeon College, a dear friend of mine, and also a Churchillian. And we are talking today about Churchillian leadership. This is a second podcast on this theme. Specifically today, we're covering lessons from the life of Churchill. Dr. Allen, welcome to the podcast. I would like to be on City of God with you today, Dr. Strand, and uh, just want to put a brief plug in for the podcast, not just the one I'm on today, but the work you do. Uh, I personally am not only a, an endorser, I'm a, I'm a listener, and I uh, appreciate your work here. You have on fascinating guests, and then you undertake uh, timely conversations and, 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 and needed discussions in this context. So thank you for your ongoing work here. Well, that's very kind. Your support has meant a lot over the years. And now, by the way, listeners, we're on Spotify. Of course, if you're listening to this on Spotify, that is redundant information, but that's a big deal for us. The, uh, the comms team, IR team here at Midwestern has worked very hard to get this podcast and others on all the major platforms. And so we just got news this week that we're on Spotify. That's a big deal. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, we signed the, uh, the deal with Spotify for just slightly less than Joe Rogan got. I hear you. <laughs> he, he got um, $100 million for Spotify. I hear you. We got slightly less than that, but we're on. You're on. That's it. Nobody can take that away. Lessons from the life of Churchill. We've talked about Churchill kind of in broad form already together, but I want to walk through some some quick things that we can extract from the life and work of Winston Churchill and even kind of apply to our lives. Dr. I don't I don't know about you, but I read Churchill, I, I won't say as kind of a, a secular guide to life and ministry. That would be too strong. He's a complicated figure, as we've already discussed together. But I go to his life and his ups and downs and his challenges and the way he weathers such tremendous storms and is under such fierce pressure for his principles. And honestly, that... <laughs> I don't know if this is too strong a word, but that ministers to mm-hmm. me. I draw lessons from his life all the time. Is that true of, of you? Oh, absolutely. And look, Churchill is the type of individual, as I said in our previous conversation, uh, if, if you are not inspired by Churchill, you are probably uninspirable. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he just, that, the way he lived his life. And again, we, we, we view him, and, and sure, there's probably a touch of romanticism in our view, but uh, because we love military history, we love world history, that yes. the, the, the era of World War II especially was so clarifying, so much was at stake, et cetera, et cetera. And look, uh, you know, Churchill's era, the late Victorian era, and then the early 20th century, I mean, it was just a unique time in the world, a unique time uh, in the United Kingdom, and a, a, a unique time in London. I mean, all of it was just so consequential. Everything mm-hmm. was so consequential. And then Churchill in that setting is particularly inspiring. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's exactly right. So it's a, it's a unique go-round all the way you slice it. Churchill knew tremendous adversity. That's the first thing, and honestly, one of the major things I extract from his life, that yes, he's this very successful politician, of course, uh, I think something like 58 years in parliament, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. So that's quite a track record in and of itself. But in all of that, he knew a lot of ups and downs. World War I, for example, to take just one, one episode in his life, the Dardanelles, where there's this failed exposit, expedition to kind of crack the war open, and, and almost went to the brink of near suicide because of that. 
Right. That's and, intense. And look, I still maintain he gets a bad rap. I mean, the, ah, <laughs> the, the plan to like force it. the Dardanelles, um, I think, was a, was a brilliant plan. Mm. Now, when you get into the mechanics of what happened and the, um, the lack of, of infantry support and kind of the, the waffling that took place where it wasn't a decisive maneuver, but it played out over a period of days and then weeks and about a month or so. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and some biographers, by the way, Andrew Roberts, who we referenced in the previous podcast, he, he argues similarly that, that Churchill gets a, a very bad rap on the Dardanelles or the Gallipoli, the Gallipoli crisis, as it's also known. Yes. Um, but no, that, that tumbled him from office. Um, he, Churchill, is depressed. He does what he believes is the honorable thing to do and takes a commission as a, I believe, lieutenant colonel and goes and mans a trench, you know, mm-hmm. on the continent and leads people there in the war zone for a period of months before he comes back and winds up getting uh, back in the war effort in a leadership role. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he shows us what it is not just to walk the heights, but also to, uh, to travel the depths. Right. And look, it, it's, it's, we have to be careful, right? And we, you and I are having this conversation where gospel ministers, your listeners, I'm sure, largely are, are believers, if not largely uh, ministers as well. And, and it's easy to view someone of historic importance and kind of like whip ourselves up into emulation, um, you know, view Edwards getting fired from his church and think, well, you know, I got to go get fired too, so I can, you know, I can be like Edwards. Yes. And uh, similarly with Churchill, you know, it, it's, it's perhaps a bit tired uh, in 21st century America for, for people to make never-ending comparisons to Churchill or, or more particularly uh, a Neville Chamberlain and, and, you know, this is a Munich moment. We all, we all weary of that. But yes. there is a lot to learn from Churchill. Yes. There's a lot to learn about his highs, a lot to learn about his lows. Mm. We also acknowledge, look, some of his challenges were self-inflicted, right? I mean, he, he lived as an adult with like a never-ending sense of financial challenge. Mm-hmm. And there's the um, man, the great book. Oh, goodness. Help me here with the name of it. I think it's called Churchill and Champagne. No More Champagne. Yeah, No More Champagne, yeah. which is a, a fascinating <laughs> read. Again, you have to be a total Churchill geek to enjoy this book. Yes. But it is a fascinating read because it's not just the broad story of Churchill's financial challenges, which, which, which you know, most biographies touch on, but it is a play-by-play of his financial challenge. And the guy lived you know, one step ahead of the, the hounds, financially speaking, his whole life. Uh-huh. And I'm just like, you know, Buy less champagne, smoke fewer cigars, you know, <laughs> tamp down your travel entourage. Like, this is entirely avoidable, Winston. You don't have to live like this. Yes. So, so some of these, and then look, he, he, he occasionally, as we reflect in the previous podcast, took political positions that, um, that, that were, you know, that were, that were questionable. Again, mm-hmm. his, his steadfast support for Edward VIII in the abdication controversy being one. But then again, he staked out turf, and, uh, and he took positions that were necessary to take. And of course, in particular, we think about uh, the 1930s leading up to World War II. And uh, yes. go ahead. Yes, excuse me. We think of that, and we also think of what happened in this state of Missouri in 1946, when after being ousted from his prime ministership, shockingly, uh, following the successful prosecution of World War II, he then has this time where he's out of office, but he's also kind of footloose and fancy free, ends up by an invitation from Harry S. Truman speaking at Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri, of all places, a tiny school, uh, actually a pretty strong uh, academic school in this state. And yet this is where he trains out. He takes the train with Truman and gives one of the most consequential speeches in the world. Right. Curtain. Yeah. And even there's you know, a story about that speech and the, uh, the machinations leading up to it, which are fascinating. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, most people, if they know of Churchill, it's kind of a, a general knowledge, and like they, they they know he was prime minister during World War II, but they have no idea he returned to another roughly five-year stint as prime minister. It's yes. sort of like, you know, when you're a kid, you, you learn about the Kennedy assassination school, and then like five years later, in a more thorough reading of history, you learn, oh, actually, there's a second Kennedy assassination, a Robert Kennedy assassination, too. Yes. Well, with Churchill, most people don't even know he had a second five-year stint as the British premier from you know, roughly age 75 to age 80. Mm. But in the Lord's kind providence, I know it didn't feel like kind providence when he was put out of office, as, um, as, as when his wife Clementine referred to him losing elections being a, a blessing, a Churchill quip, something like, and a, and a very well-disguised blessing at that. <laughs> but those five years enabled him to write his war memoirs, mm. enabled him to kind of step back and reflect, enabled him to come and deliver this Iron Curtain speech mm. in Fulton, Missouri. Mm. And even the invitation, how he got, how, how, how Truman... Uh, uh, involved himself and promised to meet Churchill here and, and be a part of the event and, and to go as we've done to Fulton, Missouri, and to not only see the Churchill uh, Library Museum there, but actually go into the gymnasium where the speech was delivered. I mean, it is, mm-hmm. it is a, I mean, it's a chill up the spine moment to get to retrace those steps and to take that in. It is completely a chill up the spine moment. Any listeners to this podcast who are currently vibing with what we are talking about regarding Winston Churchill, need to assemble self, friends, church members, or family, and plot a visit to Fulton when the museum is all the way back opened, uh, let that be said, in pandemic season, and visit this great little museum. It's not huge. It's not a big, you know, giant museum, but you need to visit it. And then absolutely, you need to walk over to the gymnasium. Almost nobody knows this. If you go into the Westminster College gym, uh, where they play sports, where they play basketball, another very hallowed usage of the gym, you will actually see, uh, uh, you'll see scaffolding mm-hmm. that is left over. It's really just about the last hallmark of his visit, where there were major uh, news station cameras hung in the gym. There's st- the scaffolding is still there from Winston Churchill's visit. So that's that's where he gave the sinews of peace, the speech that reshapes America's approach, the West's approach to communism. Yeah, and look, this is a brief digression here, but if you were to ask me, where did my appreciation for Churchill began, uh, begin? Well, it began just as a kid. I love military history. I've always just had appreciation for history as a kid. Totally. Um, but but it, it really kind of went into overdrive in college when actually I, I began reading Churchill biographies more, more extensively. And uh, in college, I, I, I picked up a CD of Churchill speeches. And I don't know if they still sell it or not, but the Ben Silver Company and their, and their, and their magazine used to always have a, a CD of Churchill speeches. It was an excerpt of like his 10 or 12 most famous speeches. And it, I mean, it's just gripping to listen to that, just mm-hmm. gripping to listen to that speech. Mm-hmm. And so I encourage your listeners, you know, maybe you're not willing at this point to, you know, to buy into an 800-page biography or a three-volume biography. But but you you need to buy into you know a brief download of Churchill's major speeches and and you will be moved. I, I remember reading about his speechifying his process you know and how he would write out his speeches and this is relevant for you and me we we do a fair bit of speaking each of us but anyone out there who's preaching or teaching or something listening now he wrote out his sentences in psalm form That's so right. So like the first line is a normal sentence, but then the second and third lines are indented significantly. That's right. That's right. And Dr. Allen, when I, when I read that in uh, Manchester's trilogy, I realized that's part of why he talks with such poetic weight. 
mm-hmm. because he's emulating the Psalms. That's right. And again, again, if we were to have, we could have a digression on this point, mm-hmm. just how much Churchill is even influenced by the King James Version of the Bible mm-hmm. and figures of speech he uses and, and, and word structures he employs. Yes. But also, you know, he, he began one of his very first speeches in Parliament. He was giving basically extemporaneously, mm-hmm. or without notes, I should say, not extemporaneously, but yep. without notes. And he froze, and he forgot his lines, and he kind of like, never again will I do this. And so he would take his speeches in, and Churchill would often give the appearance of it being extemporaneous, but it was far from it. I mean, he had <laughs> every pause you know, planned out, every point of humor planned out, every point of a sarcasm planned out, and he was the most well-scripted guy on the planet. And uh, again, there's a lesson there for preachers and for, for those who have responsibilities for public speaking to uh, maybe you don't have to have notes written out manuscript style in some format, but to never be underprepared. Man, we've talked about these sorts of things on Preaching and Preachers, your excellent podcast. I'm reversing the roles here today, having you on mine. It's a very interesting conversation. I remember a friend saying to me when I was flirting with, oh, I'm not going to really write anything out for this sermon. This was probably 20 years, 15 years ago when I was just starting out preaching. I, I don't want to, I want to be free. I want to, you know, have that ability to kind of riff in the pulpit. And my friend said, you know, those politicians, those speeches that you cite that we all enjoy from Reagan or, you know, whoever from history, Churchill probably cited, those guys wrote their speeches out. You're going into a pulpit. You're not Reagan and Churchill, in point of fact. Maybe you should write your speeches out. Right. (laughs) And and, and there's a big difference between Reagan and and Churchill. Churchill actually wrote his speeches. Yeah. Reagan, who I adore, and the modern politician, for that matter, they all have speech writers who help, you know. But, uh, but again, back to just Churchill's own gifting, the yes. ability, you know, just truly a wordsmith, truly a craftsman when it came to the English language. Yes. Another lesson from Churchill's life, he persevered for a really long time in his life goal. He wanted to be prime minister all his days, mm-hmm. really. And he is in his early to mid-60s, and it's looking not very likely in the 1930s at different points that he's ever going to return to power. He held most of the cabinet positions in the UK government, not quite all of them, but most of them. So had a fantastic round of preparation to be the premier. And yet it was when he was uh, in his almost uh, 70s, he was almost Mm -hmm. 70 when he was elected. 65. He was 65 when he- And served until about 70. That's right. So that tells us something, doesn't it? It communicates a lesson to us about- persevering for a very long time. Yeah. So remember, um, Churchill's father, Lord Randolph, he attained high office, including Chancellor of the Exchequer, mm-hmm. which is like their Secretary of the Treasury. Yes. And uh, generally understood to be like the position just below the prime minister. Mm-hmm. And so many people thought that Lord Randolph w- would attain uh, the premiership. And that was back in an era when, when it, it, it was not uncommon for a member of the House of Lords to actually be elected premier, you know, when mm. now you have to remember the House of Commons, politically speaking, to be elected. Um, but, but so Churchill from a young age saw his father reach the heights of power, but, but, but not quite you know, all the way. And yes. then, of course, his father suffered from syphilis and uh, evidently syphilis and, and led to mental derangement and a relatively early death. But Churchill, look, he was not in want for ambition, mm. and he wanted the, uh, the reins of power. Not just, I think, as some grand exercise in self-aggrandizement, but because he, he believed in his country, his people, Western civilization. He believed in his own ability to lead. Again, he had the sense of destiny about his life, and he, 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 he desired that 
that authority, that power. Mm-hmm. And as a young man, he looked well in his way. I mean, he was first Lord of the Admiralty in the context of World War I. He, he occupied several positions of high office as a young man, including Chancellor of the Exchequer mm-hmm. as a young man. And then, you know, the, the Dardanelles happened, and then you, know, you get into— um, and then, of course, when you get into the late 1920s and into the 1930s, I mean, he is just altogether marginalized. Mm. And it's as though to, um, to ascend to the top of the mountain politically, he had to go to the deepest depths of the valley. Mm. Because in the final analysis, when the nation finally woke up to the fact that the threat of Hitler is not only real, it's more real than we ever imagined. And we've been duped by our politicians, our leading class for a decade. There was one guy, one man, mm. who had clearly, from the beginning, again and again and again, with prophetic foresight and prophetic conviction, called out the, the evil of Hitlerism and called out his own people for sleepwalking towards a catastrophic collision with it. Mm. And so... That voice, that voice, that voice, that pen, that pen, that pen, which led to his, his political marginalization is exactly what catapulted him into power in the hour of greatest need. That's right. Uh, the, the principle, the trait we could really draw out from what you just said is that of courage which is not going to shock anybody who is familiar with discussions of Winston Churchill, that we would discuss that trait, that virtue. But the, this is just a man of nothing less than fantastic courage. Right. Uh, there are a few biographies written about Anthony Eden, who was right. a fantastic politician in his own right in terms of popularity and effect. There are a few biographies written about Lord Halifax. Right. A few written about Neville, Neville Chamberlain. Not many. Uh, congratulatory. There are hundreds written about Winston Churchill. There are dozens each year written about this man. There are many reasons why. We've covered many of them uh, on these two podcasts, but courage stands out. Mm-hmm. Take away the courage, and he's, he's like those other figures. He's another very gifted, quite consequential politician who nonetheless did not sit astride the world, but because of his courage, he changes world history. He saves the West. That's right. And again, with that courage, there was a, a, a credibility that, that amplified it, mm. that made it believable. Um, it, because the, 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 and the credibility was his, his courage not being within him, but being projected from him. To the great issues of the day, mm-hmm. and again, the issue of, of Hitlerism in particular. Yes, and, and the fact that he is not just trying to be this heroic leader, but th- interestingly, though he is a man firmly of the upper class and of upper class taste and all these sorts of things, sensibilities, he nonetheless channels the common spirit of England. Right, yeah, I mean, he could have easily just kind of, you know, weekended it, uh, you know, taking his weekends at Blenheim Palace. Mm-hmm. But it was a combination, not just the conviction, but the gifting to speak and write in a compelling way, mm-hmm. the foresight to see an issue come together, uh, the platform to actually have a platform from which to speak and write in a compelling way. And again, that's where I go back to the providence of God. You have to conclude that God and his kind providence had orchestrated not just these events broadly, but, but this man. Mm-hmm. You know, the, uh, William Manchester's 
and, and two volume, and then Paul Reed, the third volume uh, biography, The Last Lion. You know, he, 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 Manchester begins his opening chapter on Churchill where it talks about you just have this pent-up need for man, you know, a Monarchian mm. who saw evil for what it was, black and white. And, 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 and Manchester pens some of those moving paragraphs in, uh, in American literature, mm-hmm. and uh, it ends with, uh, you know, in London there was such a man. <laughs> And, and it became in that crucible where even Churchill's stiffest political adversaries kind of all came around to see, yes, this was Churchill's finest hour. This was his finest hour, and that's why we're, we're still talking about him and we will continue to talk about him. I would encourage folks who have listened here and had their interest peaked. Of course, many people know about church already, but I would encourage you to search him out. I would encourage fathers to, to read the Last Lion trilogy with their sons when they can. Maybe that's even into college or something like this, perhaps. But th- this is a man whose legacy is worth passing on. Look, there are unhealthy aspects, to be sure, of Imperial Britannia. Uh, We can say that straight up. We can talk about colonialism and we can identify real problems in it. We can also identify major strengths. For example, in in the career of Churchill and uh, and the country he fought for. He fought for a greater cause. Uh, He committed himself to a people. Leaders today, by the way, should draw the lesson from his life that we're not leading against the people. Uh, We're not trying to, to act as if we're better than the people. We're trying to help the people. We're trying to speak for them. So this is a figure, in sum, Dr. Allen, who is worth studying, who's worth learning about. Uh, it's worth learning about his flaws, but it is definitely worth learning about his epic strengths as well. Yeah, well said. Look, we are mature individuals. Uh, we are adults. We can look at Churchill in full color. And yes, that's not a full affirmation of British imperialism, of colon- uh, colonialism. And so many other things of the era that, that, that we would find objectionable. But, but we can also, with that awareness, look to how dark the hour truly was. Mm. Not just for London, not just for England, not just for the UK, not just for the empire, but for the world. Yes. And thank God that he takes a man with all his warts, and, uh, and that man helps to lead his people and, uh, and the allies to final victory. Amen. Good word. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast, and thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Thanks for listening to City of God, a podcast at the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. We're so thankful you stopped by. We encourage you to continue to join the conversation at cpt.mbts.edu, the official website of the center. And we encourage you to follow us on Twitter and Facebook as well. Join us in coming days as we continue the conversation on what it means to be the city of God in the city of man.